And I would say one of the most interesting things that I found as I was starting to do the research is that I surveyed thousands of teachers and leaders. And when I asked them when they would de-implement, this is where the learning piece for me comes in because I'm always going in, I'm looking for reciprocal learning, not just what people can learn from me, but what am I learning from them? It's how I approach coaching. It's how I approach workshops. And when I was doing all the surveys and stuff, one of the things that came out, like I just, it just hit me is that 100% of the time when people said they would abandon something, it was always something they thought was being done to them as opposed to something they were doing themselves. Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. In today's show, we'll explore how less can be more when it comes to innovation in education, as well as the concept of building healthier and more effective teams within a school. Today's guest is Peter DeWitt, a former teacher and principal. Peter is now a leadership coach, facilitating professional learning nationally and internationally based on the content of many of his best-selling educational books on school climate, collaborative instructional leadership, and collective efficacy. His work has appeared in educational research journals at the state, national, and international levels. He works with numerous school districts, school boards, regional networks, and education organizations around the world. Peter is also the author of Education Week's Finding Common Ground blog. So I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your journey first, starting as what led you to become a teacher and maybe just work us through to where you are today. What brought me into teaching was the fact that I am the youngest of five and the first to go to college. And I was actually retained when I was in fourth grade. My dad passed when I was in fifth grade. My mom went back to get her GED when I was in sixth grade. And then I barely graduated from high school. I actually graduated fourth from last in my class. And two community colleges later, after I failed out, I had a sister who was National Honor Society, amazing. And she just said, I want you to get a two-year degree. She had dropped out of college to take care of me, help my mom take care of me. And she said, I just want you to have more than we have. I went to a community college where I could run cross country because I was a runner. And the coach there said, but I want you to go into the Learning Assistance Center. You can't run with us. So that was the deal. I walked in with a 1.7 GPA that semester, and I walked out with a 3.86. And during the summers, I got a job at a summer camp. I needed a job. And down where I was living, there was there was a summer camp, and it was called Greenbush Child Care. And so I actually got a job at the summer camp and then the after-school program during the year. And that's how I knew I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, because I loved all of it. I just, I loved all of it. And so I ended up going to get my undergrad. I was on a running scholarship, actually, but part of it, and went to get my undergrad in elementary education. Happened to go in to do some observation hours with a teacher that was just phenomenal. And I ended up becoming his first student teacher ever. And yeah, it, it turned out that after I graduated, I ended up getting a job. And I was teaching first grade in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is outside of New York City. 
And I taught at a couple of high poverty city schools for about 11 years. And then after that, I became the school principal. When I was teaching, I had been teaching for a few years and I had a principal who had said, I think you should go back and get your degree in administration because I was getting a master's degree in educational psychology. And he said, I think you should do administration. And I actually said to him, I would never, ever be a school principal. <laughs> Ran into these two retired teachers that I knew at the gym where I was working out. And they said, what if you could be the principal you want to be, not the one you think you have to be? And I just, those words never left me. And a couple of years later, I moved up to Albany, New York, where I live now, and went back to get a degree in school administration. And then after 11 years of teaching, I got a job as the school principal in a rural suburban school district. So, and my sister, Trisha, actually went back to get her two year degree and all that stuff. So, there's success there too. And yeah, so that's how I got into education in the first place. And I always like to hear a little bit about your people's experiences as beginning teachers, especially people who we now see as you're an expert educator, you're training. Yeah, I, don't, I would say that. But... <laughs> but, you know, people look at you and say, Peter DeWitt knows what he's talking about. He, he's, a, he's an experienced guy. He can take on these different ways of thinking and being. And he must have always been amazing. Oh, no. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like when you first walked into that first grade classroom. That was just, it was amazing. I had been teaching. I was actually a part-time, it was like three-quarter time teacher, probably would have been considered a teaching assistant these days, but at a private school for boys, which I loved. It was a fantastic place, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. And back then in the nineties, you printed out your resume and you sent them out through the mail. It wasn't, you weren't doing it through email. When I sent out 85 resumes and I got a job, I ended up going down to Poughkeepsie to do four interviews in the same school district. So I got a job in what they considered more of the high poverty school. And it was a really interesting school because it's closed now, but across the street was Vassar College. So I had parents who were Vassar College professors, but we also were near low-income housing. So it was this really interestingly diverse school. And I grew up in upstate New York, so I grew up in the Adirondacks. So it wasn't what I was used to. And I loved it all. Like walking into the first grade classroom, I remember my principal, I give him a lot of credit because he said, so what do you need? And I said, I need to move all of the desks out of the classroom <laughs> and I want tables. And that was a pretty nervy move on my part because the guy had been the guy had been in the school district for 50 years by the time he retired a couple of years later so i said that to him and he goes all right and he had all the desks moved out and i got tables and i just remember i had 30 first graders and i had a teaching assistant for about an hour a day and she was fantastic and it was just i was in heaven to be honest with you, I really was like, I felt so honored to be a teacher. And I think that's what made my perspective different because I had friends who were teachers who their parents, like in one case, his parent was a, a college professor and she almost looked down on the fact that he was a public school teacher. And mine was the opposite. Like my mom talked about me like I was one step closer to God because she would introduce me and say, this is the baby, which I never grew out of. I was always the baby because I was the youngest. 
Peter and he's a teacher. And it was just this sense of pride that my family had around teaching. So all of that was just really fantastic. And it's funny with Facebook now because I've kept in touch with so many of the parents and I actually officiated the wedding. Two of my former first graders got married oh and they my asked gosh. me to officiate the wedding. So ah. it's just funny how back then I never would have dreamed I'd be officiating their wedding in 2021, 2022. But yeah, it's just, I have very fond memories. We used to do things like Thanksgiving dinners and I had a parent that would actually donate a turkey and they came in with a 25 pound turkey and the kids had made their placemats. And it was just this family. It was besides the academic, it was the social emotional. It was just, we were one big family and I had a lot of parents who would come in and volunteer their time. And I was very fortunate. My first few years being introduced into teaching, I was very fortunate. And I remember my principal who tried to get me to be a principal. He actually said to me one time that I was a breath of fresh air and I never knew what he meant by that. And apparently it was because I was positive all the time about things, but it really, I just enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed teaching kids how to read. That was a phenomenal experience that I didn't have a reading degree. So having a special ed teacher, because I ended up teaching inclusion. So I had a special ed teacher, Anna, and she was just this fantastic special ed teacher. She was from the Bronx. I'm from upstate New York. And then my friend Joanne was a speech pathologist. And the three of us would teach together. We co-taught together. Nobody told us to. That's the weirdest thing, like looking back. Nobody told us to. It was just that I remember seeing special ed kids getting pulled out of the classroom and they would be taught in the hallway. And I just thought of how wrong that was. So when Anna came in, it was just, let's co-teach together. And then Joanne came in to service their kids. And I said, why don't you stay in the classroom? What if the three of us taught? And it was, there was just a lot of learning at the same time that I was teaching. That's probably more than you wanted, isn't it? No, I think that so it's so interesting that you say your principal said you were a breath of fresh air because I, as you're telling this story, it has a uniquely positive twist, right? That a lot of people will say, oh my God, I didn't know what I was doing. I was clueless and I was just like struggling oh, through my days. That. And <laughs> But the positivity behind it helps you to recognize that it, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was learning. And I was growing and I was becoming better as opposed to, I don't know what I did to those poor kids, <laughs> which you can, you can really, if you go in and you're feeling that you're, that you're unsure and obviously you don't know everything because it's your first time. And if you take it, if you flip it and take it in that opposite direction, instead of finding opportunities for growth and finding opportunities to learn as an adult, you can really lose some of that momentum and lose some of that passion because you just don't, you're looking at the negative. And so I do appreciate that. Yeah. It was just such a, first of all, I was told in high school to focus on a two-year school because I probably wouldn't get any further. And so to have all of those experiences where you're the struggling learner, I did walk in to education, public education with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, Nobody had it as hard as I had it when I was growing up, losing my dad and all that stuff. But the reality is when I started teaching at that school, there were kids that came from pretty terrible backgrounds and you learn really quick to get over your own stuff and start to create a space that's going to be the best place for them. And I remember the faces of some of the kids that were just going through some terrible times. 
And then there's a responsibility, right? Because parents would come and they would talk to me about things because they knew I put my story out there. Like they knew that I, I struggled through school and stuff because I wanted to be transparent with them because it's interesting, even in first grade, there are parents that would think, I can't tell this guy that my my child's struggling because what if they never get to go to Harvard? <laughs> and I'm the I was the person to say, listen, it all will look different. Just because you don't excel right now doesn't mean you're not going to excel. It means that maybe you need more timing and all of that kind of stuff. And when you meet kids that are going through situations that are so beyond what you went through too, you quickly realize that you don't need that chip on your shoulder anymore. So I would say in a strange way, and not to sound too overly dramatic, but it was real, that the kids that I taught saved me because they help, They just helped me be better as a person because of what they were going through. And I knew that if, and I used to, believe me, I made mistakes. I made mistakes during that time, but I used to think if I could just have them here and just create this environment where they love to be, then that's a, that's at least something like it, it's something there. And yeah, we used to start off every morning doing morning aerobics. We would run in place and all that stuff. I'd play the the cranberries dream and we'd play that every morning on the tape recorder. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it was just, it was, and then when I became a principal, it was the same thing. I interviewed in front of a panel of 17 people and a few of them were teachers. I had no administration experience whatsoever, but I brought my binder. I had a huge teacher's binder and when I went in for the interview, they asked me what kind of principal I would be. And I said, as well, I don't have any experience as a principal, but I can show you what kind of teacher I am. And I like dropped it with the 50 pound weight of the portfolio on the table and they all passed it around. And yeah, they called me a few days later and said, can you go in front of the board tonight? And they hired me. And that was like three months. That was April. And then I was going to be officially starting in July. But the person I was taking over for actually said, listen, I'm going to be the assistant superintendent. You can come over anytime you want. And I was still teaching. So I would leave my school at 3.30, get over there at about four o'clock. I would go over about once a week, get to know the teachers, my secretary, or who was going to be my secretary, give me a yearbook and said, study the yearbook. She wrote the names of their spouses next to, you know, next to that. So I studied that. I took two personal days and spent the whole day at the school. So by the time I started on July 1st, I already knew everybody. And then same thing. I was really nervous. They hand you the keys to a building. They're like, you're the principal now. But I was still super excited to just be a principal. And I would go and say good morning to the kids every single morning and go around and do my morning rounds and all that stuff. And I think, yeah, you know what? I guess that excitement, people understand that you're grateful to be there. And I think that matters in most cases. I think people can see that you're, I think people are grateful that you're grateful to be working with them. And I always made sure that my staff knew how grateful I was to be working with them. This has kind of taken a more of a turn than I thought it was going to. I thought we were going to talk about content. Here I am. Right. Like, oh, I feel like I should have a tissue. <laughs> we're talking about, we're talking about all of it. What I love to hear is the story of who you are and how you have become a culture builder. You really have been the kind of person who recognizes that culture and connectedness 
is what really takes something from good to outstanding. Taking a classroom of students who feel connected as a family, a classroom family, just the same as you, it sounds, that you did as a principal, making sure that you recognize all of your staff as a, a teaching family. I think that's just telling the story of who you are and how you continue to grow that in the work that you do today. I wonder, just last year, you published, I don't know what number, your fifth or sixth book? Eighth, eighth or ninth. Eighth book, okay, titled De-Implementation. And I would love for you to talk a, about that just a little bit. We saw your tweet that mentioned you thought about calling it Just Stop. <laughs> <laughs> and we love that. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's also nice to use the more formal Researchy role. kind of word. Yes. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what de-implementation means and how we as educators can de-implement in our, in our classrooms, in our schools, in our districts. Yeah, and how that works, right? I, yeah, it does. I want to I want to start off by giving credit to John Hattie, John, researcher out of the University of Melbourne, Australia. Most people know who he is. John and I were talking, and he mentioned that he had been reading research run de implementation, and it was like an earworm. I just couldn't get it out. I emailed him and just said, "Hey, could you send me like some more information?" So he sent me the one of the articles on de-implementation from the medical field, and it's the abandonment of low-value practices. And I love that. Like, I just thought that's fantastic. So I had said, hey, do you mind if I go further with this? And he was like, go ahead, but he, which he typically does. And I explored it in a book that I wrote on collective leader efficacy, strengthening instructional leadership teams. And the reason why is because one of the drivers for a more impactful instructional leadership team is workload. And when you're, and at that time, we're talking about starting to come through COVID. It was very early on. We had just gotten the vaccine. We saw, I write for Ed Week. I've been writing for Education Week since 2011. We saw a lot of research showing the increase in anxiety. Mark Brackett's work from Yale, same thing. And so it connected with me in a way that I thought there's got to be something to do here. Just like when I said, move the desks out of the classroom and move the tables in, you're right. It was very much that, how can I help? What can we do differently? How can we do this? Over that time, when I was researching, I was running workshops and talking about it at the same time I was writing. And there was research that came out in 2021 from Farmer, which is the field of school psychology in Canada. And one of the things Farmer found is what's the criteria for this, right? What's the criteria? To, what's a low value practice? So I was able to look at the criteria, which is that maybe this intervention isn't working anymore, or you found a better intervention, or maybe it's just harmful, like things like zero tolerance policies, or maybe it's just not needed anymore. Contact tracing. People spend a lot of time doing that, and then they didn't have to do that anymore. So I expanded on it and said, I know that schools aren't going to do this. Like I just, I, it's especially with researchy words, you have to be very careful because if it's too researchy, I know people won't do it because they'll just say, this is theory. So the whole practice came in when I started thinking around, well, how can we go about this? And that's when I started to introduce, what if we were doing a formal de-implementation or an informal de-implementation. A formal one is one you would need for a team. Think 
you're changing grading practices from traditional grading to standards-based grading. The other one, though, would be informal, which you could wake up and do tomorrow. And you realize that you don't need a team. You really just need to give yourself permission. And I would say one of the most interesting things that I found as I was starting to do the research is that I surveyed thousands of teachers and leaders. And when I asked them when they would de-implement, this is where the learning piece for me comes in because I'm always going in, I'm looking for reciprocal learning, not just what people can learn from me, but what am I learning from them? It's how I approach coaching. It's how I approach workshops. And when I was doing all the surveys and stuff, one of the things that came out, like I just, it just hit me is that 100% of the time when people said they would abandon something, it was always something they thought was being done to them as opposed to something they were doing themselves. And what we have to understand in this respectfully, there's actually research from 2000 from Helen Temperley and Vivian Robinson out of New Zealand, is that they have talked about, we contribute to our own workloads as much as those outside initiatives can contribute. Because what happens is that we don't want to let go of something. When something's coming in, we want to just keep doing whatever we were doing and this. And what's sad is that we'll continue to do that even if we don't even do the work to understand if it works or not. It's just that we like it. And I get it. This I'm is the way. Fourth, this is yeah, the way we've been fourth, doing. We had all these cute things that we used to do. And I want to be able to do that. What if that's not a part of the curriculum anymore? And so we, so the de-implementation from the simplistic view is the abandonment of low-value practices. It gets more complicated when you have to, in your school, start looking at what is a low-value practice and are we willing to do it or not? Do you find that people have emotional connection oh, yeah. to low-value practices? And what happens then? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it really comes down to two things. And Hattie talks about this a lot. It's how is this positively impacting student learning? You know, when I'm coaching and they're talking about bringing in new strategies and I'm talking everything, like whether you're going out to a conference or a workshop, you're coming to see me, doesn't matter. How is this going to positively impact your students? Because if it's not, then you shouldn't be doing it. And number two, how are we evaluating our own impact? You know, as teachers, we need to evaluate our own impact. How do we know it's working? And that's something that I do within my own work. I deeply care about, am I being impactful? Because I get away easy. People hire me, they bring me in, I run a workshop, give a keynote. That's not good enough though. If I'm going to talk about de-implementation, I'm going to talk about impact. I want to know how is my work impacting? And I'm able to do that in the longer partnerships that I have, which are monthly and they're hybrid. And we have surveys that are completely focused on success criteria. So I'm not asking people to do anything that I don't do. And people do get emotionally tied. Teaching is very emotional. I get it. I'm, I've been in education for a really long time. It changed my life. It's very emotional. What teaching can mean to you. I think it should be emotional, what teaching can mean to us. But that doesn't mean that we should be clouded in a way that we're not looking to make sure that we're impactful to. I think they can go hand in hand. And so I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the concept that you mentioned called clutter checks. 
I wonder if that is maybe a part of that process. And if you could just explain to our listeners what that is, why it's important, and how it can help us to identify those exact pieces that you're talking about where it is emotional and meaningful, right? Yeah. There's a lot, there are a lot of things that you can do. So when I'm working with principals that are trying to find time to be instructional leaders, but management's getting in the way, I ask them to do something simple, which I didn't create. I just, people have been doing this for years. Calendar your time. How are you spending your time? This is what I do with principals. How are you spending your time? Non-judgmental. Just write it down. Monday through Friday. Do it for a couple of weeks and then go back through and highlight the areas that might be considered Highlight in yellow the areas that might be considered instructional leadership, use green for management. And start to look at those management things to see, do you need to do as much of that as you think, or do you need to give yourself permission to get up away from your desk? And that's what clutter checks are all about. It's really that idea of just shifting your mindset to looking at how you're functioning right now. I'm a runner. And so I log my running, especially if I'm going to be training. I have the lose it out because when I was early on getting out in the road, I gained a lot of weight. And so I started to use the lose it app to see what am I eating? What do I need to get out of the way? Because it's contributing in a negative way. So it's that kind of mindset. And that's what clutter checks are all about. Sometimes we call them not to do lists. So what I'm doing right now is I'm going through a collaborative inquiry process with principals where they have to bring their academic plans or their school improvement plans, whatever they call it, bring it with you. And then you're going to talk to me about your three main priorities. What are your three main priorities? And then let's build success criteria. What would success look like if you actually do this? And then when we start to talk about the actionable steps, we have to make a not to-do list. That's a clutter check. What do we? What is getting in the way of your success. And we need to think about it that way. What are those things that are actually the barriers? And uh, those are the things that you do have influence over though. So that's a clutter check. Another clutter check is being able to look at is something as simple as email. We are so, we have our phones with us all the time. And I was checking my, especially when I'm on the road and it's probably out of boredom or something, but I was checking my email every 10 minutes and that's just ridiculous. So people have this ingrained idea that I'm supposed to check email a million times a day and God forbid that I don't answer you within the first 12 hours, I'm going to send you a reply that says, I'm sorry for the delay. I used to be the, I'm sorry for the delay guy, because I would wait 10 or 12 hours and then I have to email them back. And then it's so funny because I would get people that would say, wow, thanks for your prompt response or thank you for your quick response. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought this was so late. So even a clutter check of how often do you check email? And do you really have to check it as often as you think? And you might not look at that as, does that really have something to do with decluttering and de-implementation? It certainly does. Because if you think about all that time that you're checking email, all that time that you've got your phone next to you on the table, what's the opportunity lost? Am I not engaged in this conversation? Am I not fully present? What are some other things that I could be doing? Social media is the thing for me too. Like Social media is a necessary element of my work, but I was spending way too much time on it, just scrolling and scrolling, thinking, what am I doing? 
and I'm, I have a daily practice of meditation. So meditation really over the past five or six years has taught me about being more present and being more focused. So even with things like social media, you can de-implement because do you really need to spend as much time on it as you do? So that's, I hope that answered your question with a few ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit more about all of these practices that you're discussing can help to build the self-efficacy that we're talking about in terms of creating effective teams, the collaborative leadership piece, and how all of those pieces combined can really help to build more effective schools, both for teachers and administrators, for students, for parents, as you know, community. How do all of these little pieces then result in more effective classrooms, more effective schools, more effective districts? Yeah, that's a great question. What I'm hoping and what I do in my own work is that when I can streamline and see where I'm, where am I wasting time? What are the things that are just not impactful? Uh, then I, I stop doing those and I start focusing on those things that are impactful. When it comes to our teams, what I have found is that our teams actually come in from a variety of places and there are people sitting around the table that don't even know why they're there. And that's an exaggeration. It really and when people come to my workshops, I will ask them why they're there. I've had people say they didn't know why they were there, and yet they're going to spend six days with me over three months. So when we are focusing on what is most impactful, what I'm trying to do is get rid of the noise, for lack of a better way of saying that. Get rid of the noise and focus on those things that you really do care about. And when you can add in different processes and elements it's going to be helpful. For example, when I'm going to run a workshop or give a keynote or even coaching with people that I've been coaching with for five or six years, I send them a letter ahead of time, not a long one, but a letter ahead of time saying, I'm thankful that I'm going to be meeting up with them. I give them my success criteria. This is the success criteria I have for our time together. Please consider why you're coming and what is your success criteria? And then when we get together, and this is coaching, this is a workshop. I've done this with over a thousand people in a keynote. I develop and co-construct success criteria with them. So I use an online tool that's anonymous. I give them a QR code. I will introduce my success criteria. And then I will say, what is going to be successful for you? What do you need from me before you leave here? in an hour or 90 minutes. I just gave a keynote in DC last week, did it there. People put it, they knew it was coming because they read the letter, they came in, they put in their success criteria of what they needed. And then I just made sure that I was tying that to the presentation. What I also had to do in order to be able to do that is suspend the idea that I had to have 150 slides of content. When you write books, just like when you're you've got a textbook and you're a teacher, you feel this pressure to do it all and you don't have to. Because what the research really shows us is that if I'm in a lecture for 95% of the time and give you 5% of the time to process by doing a quick turn and talk where I'm not even going to ask you what you're talking about, that's not going to be impactful. It doesn't transfer learning back to the classroom. But if I can cut out some of my content and talk for 50% of the time, 
and give you 50% of the time to process, then it is much more likely that you're going to walk away from me and you're going to be able to use some of those practices and transfer that. But I'm also very honest when I'm running, when I'm giving a keynote or running a workshop, I will talk about research to say we can change a strategy, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to impact student learning. So your original question about how is this, all this, these pieces going to fit? That's a lot of information that I just gave you. But for me, the reality is what we have to do is look at what do, what would be successful about this presentation? What do I want people to walk away with? And then I make sure that the content is not overwhelming and I cut it down to a place where they can actually talk and process about it. And then they share with me their thoughts through this online engagement tool that I use. And I can read it through that way and bring in their conversation. I remember I, I was running a full day workshop for 400 people and I had a woman after me come up and said, I always go to this conference and I love it. And she said, but this is the very first time that I felt like the presenter actually heard me. And she goes, and you actually read both my success criteria and some of the things that I put into that tool. That's pretty powerful when that happens, right? So de-implementation is really about changing your mindset to less is more. So what are the things that we really don't need to do? And I've learned that the things I didn't, I don't need to do anymore is have a lot of slides about research. I could have a few slides about research. I could have a few practices. I could have a few theory points. But at the same time, I replace those with a space for you to be able to talk and engage in discussion with me. And what I found has happened is there's a reciprocal transfer of learning that happens because you might be learning through me because I'm very intentional when I'm speaking about what I want you to, the success criteria, why I use it. I do a lot of metacognition type activities, but at the same time, what I found is that I am learning as much from you because what you're putting in that success criteria, what you're putting in those slides are things that I may not have thought about before. And I will say, oh, I never even thought about it that way. Hopefully that answered your question. But it is, it's about just, it's about looking at our practices and saying, what is, am I doing it because I've always done it this way? Or am I doing it because it's something that's actually working and beneficial? And I've changed those practices over the years. I, I mean, this is all making a ton of sense to me. And as a former teacher, I, I get it. And I, you know, I wish that I would have had some of these conversations when I was in the classroom. I think that that all of that the, these, you know, discussions about what is, what are we doing to serve our students and is, are all of the things that we are doing across our day really serving our students? Right? I think that a lot of times we forget that the things that we've just always done, they might not always be the thing that we should continue to do. And I wonder for teachers who feel like, I really feel, I feel frustrated, right? I, I feel like my administration doesn't listen to me or I feel that I'm not getting the opportunity to say what I think should be done in our school or in our district. What do you say to teachers who feel like they need more opportunities to be heard? Why do you feel that that, if you do feel, and I think that part of, you know, a lot of your work says that teachers need to have that efficacy. What can a district do to, pri to prioritize building 
that self-efficacy for teachers when it hasn't been prioritized or implemented well in the past? And how can teachers themselves bring that to the forefront, feeling that lack of being heard? Yeah. So that's a, a very deep, layered question. Teachers, first of all, need to have more voice. We know there's a lot of research that shows that they don't. They, And we often talk about teachers as if they're high schoolers when many of them have master's degrees and beyond. There are a couple of things. Number one, you have to have a principal that's willing to hear. I had teachers, I would say, we were going through some really bad times a long time ago. And I remember just saying, they kept saying morale is low. And I wanted to know what does that mean? Because we all control morale, right? Whether if we're going to talk negatively about a student or a parent, we're contributing negatively to morale. So we did an activity where I gave them chart paper and just said, I want you to write down everything that contributes to low morale. And then I gave them three stickers and I said, I want you to go up and vote. The number one thing that came out, and there weren't a lot of, there were a lot of things on the list, believe me, but there weren't a lot of things with stickers. And the number one thing that came out was, I don't feel like, we don't feel like we have a voice in our own learning. They said, you're absolutely right. Because there was a lot of compliance-based stuff. So what I did was I actually started flipping my faculty meetings at that time. I said, we can control the learning. What do we want to learn together? You tell me. We talk about what we want to learn together. First thing we looked at was feedback. I said, I'll find an article. You read it ahead of time. You bring evidence of what feedback looks like. I want to learn how to give better feedback. Let's do this together. So you need a principal that's willing to do that kind of thing and hear. For those that are in classrooms where they don't have that, you can still develop collective efficacy, even if you have a principal that's not listening. Collective efficacy is a shared conviction that you can engage in joint work and have impact on student learning. So you can still do that work, regardless of whether you have a principal that's going to be supportive. It's a lot easier when you do, but you can have that. The other thing is, I remember Michael Fullen, international systems expert. He's been a wonderful mentor of mine for years. He said the statement that I love, just because you're stuck with their policies doesn't mean you need to be stuck with their mindset. We often get caught up in that control thing. It's exactly what I was telling you before about de-implementation. We focus so much on what we don't control that we ignore what we do. And we have a lot of influence over what happens within our classrooms. And we can find different ways to teach within the classroom, right? the way we deliver our content, the way we maybe stop lecturing so much and, and engage in more collaborative learning with students and those kind of things. Those are things that we can control within our own classroom. As we go up, your question about what can districts do, they can model what it is they want to see so badly. And that's a huge issue in school districts. I'm often in school districts where they ask me to practice instructional leadership and teach principals how to be instructional leaders and then I go to the district meetings and they have an agenda where they talk at principals the whole entire time. They don't give them time to process. So if you really want to engage in this culture where we can learn from one another, then it starts from the top with modeling. It's the idea that, and I'm working in a school complex in Hawaii on the big island, and they have a high poverty rate and literacy issues. And one of the things that the complex area started doing is before the principals come to the meetings the complex area, they send out a letter and they actually have success criteria. And then they ask the principals to develop their success criteria. And then they come together and they share that. And then they move forward that way. So it's more collaborative. Those are things that don't take a long time. 
they're things that could take five, 10 minutes, but the dividends are much bigger than that. So at every level, you've got that. And for a principal, you can do the same thing. If you really want to give teachers a voice, then do that at your faculty meetings, at your instructional leadership team meetings. Do you develop success criteria? Do you know what a successful team actually looks like? One of the things I do in my longer work around collective leader efficacy and strength and instructional leadership teams is we develop success criteria about what does an instructional leadership team actually look like? Why does a successful one look like? And what roles do each one of the people around the table actually play in? Does the principal have to be the, the person who controls the meeting? No. When I had my principal's advisory council, I was a member. We had two co-chairs that were teachers. Why are we doing more of that? So those are all the things that we can do. The problem is, Amanda, is that people have this problem of letting go of control. And I get it because I can be a control freak. But the reality is I am better because of the people that I work with. I do a lot of work in the state of Washington. I'm a lead advisor for all the directors of teaching and learning. I work in a group with people from the Washington Association of School Administrators. There's a five-member team. And each one of us on that five-member team plays a different role. I just happen to be one of the lead advisors. My friend, Jenny Donahue, is another lead advisor. And then this guy, Tom Murphy, is the outside evaluator. He's a retired superintendent. Chris Beals is the one in charge of the project. And Mike Nelson is actually the assistant superintendent for WASA. And he's a retired superintendent. The five of us meet every week. I walk into there with one idea, but I walk out with a much better one because of the other four of them. And we've been doing this work for two years now. So letting go of some of that control and being willing to walk in with an idea, but walk out with a better one because of the collective thoughts of the people around you is also a really great way to be able to do that work. I'm hearing you talk about all of this stuff. I'm, I'm hearing you talk about all of these methods for improving practice as adults. And I feel like there's absolutely a way to do that as a teacher in a classroom as well. That a lot of these methods that you say, you know, if we want this in our schools, we need to model it. Sounds like these are also practices that we can be doing in our English language arts classrooms, in our social studies and science classrooms, in our math classrooms, in our primary classrooms, where we walk in saying, I have an idea. Here's how I think we're going to go. But I'm willing to allow my students to help me pave that path. Right. Yeah. All, and, of the, all of this goes back to good teaching. All of it goes back to good teaching. When I'm sharing success criteria, that's just good teaching. When I'm cutting down on the content that I'm teaching in order to give people time to process, that's good teaching. So you're absolutely right. And it goes back to my first grade teaching days. When something wasn't working, you have 30 first graders in front of you, you figure it out real quick that it's not working. And I, so I think that much to your point, a lot of teachers do practice this. They know when something's not working and they quickly pivot to something that's going to. So you're absolutely right with that modeling. It's a really good practice. It's unfortunately people see it as compliance, but when I go into schools where the teachers have to develop success criteria, not all of them take it seriously because they feel like it's being done to them. It's such a great opportunity to let kids know what success looks like and even better it's a great opportunity to develop that with kids. I could develop that with first graders. So you can develop it with all kids. It's just the language is going to look different. So yes, you're absolutely right. The All of this is 
going into your PLCs, going into your teacher team meetings, your department chair meetings, whatever it is, going into those meetings, you can go in with success criteria. You can go in willing to learn to other from other people. You can go in to walk in with that one idea, but walk out with a better one because of the people you're working with. It's exactly what happened to me when Anna was my special ed teacher and Joanne was my speech pathologist. They, But we had trust. They could look at me and say, I don't think that's going to work. Or are you sure, DeWitt, you want to do that? They could be very brutally honest with me. And did it make me upset sometimes? Of course. But they were right. And we could do that with one another and then go in and we were really a team. So absolutely, the answer to your question is yes. These are things that can be done with every level. This has just been absolutely enlightening. Peter DeWitt, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I I think that, you know, there's so many levels that we can take this. I mean, I can take the pieces that we talked about today. How can I apply that in my own life? How can I apply that as a parent, as a partner, as a a coworker? I don't have to be an educator even to to apply some of these, these models. And I think that we can walk away as, you know, as educators and say, how can I think about how I structure my my experience in a classroom and how can I do this from the top down or and with the the expectation the openness to say I also want to be learning from the bottom up yes and if you if you feel like you don't have a voice because of the top down make sure you're not doing that same thing to the people you serve right the kids And I also think that we often have a little bit more control within the classroom than we think we do. And that's something to really reflect on for people as well. Thanks, Peter. Really, really great chatting with you today. Before we go, I want to make sure that you get an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can, how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow you on social. If you could share just your information on where they can go to learn more about what we've discussed today. That'd be great. Yeah. So they can just go to peterdewitt.com and that's my website and that will give you access to email and that will have all the social media stuff as well. So that's a great place to do one-stop shopping. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. I'm hoping we can chat again sometime in the future. We'll love to hear about what you have coming up in the in the next couple of years. Absolutely. You know, give us give us a, a shout when you're ready right, to talk about so what much, new Amanda. things are coming up for you. Here are a few key takeaways from my conversation with Peter DeWitt. De-implementation. It refers to the process of giving up low-value practices that may be more harmful than helpful. Abandoning the practices that do not positively impact student learning. It's something that we need to think about in our classrooms, in our schools, in our districts, and sometimes even in our own homes, right? To de-implement at any level, it's important to assess the impact of current practices on student learning and eliminate those that are ineffective. One way to start is to look at clutter checking. Think about this as an easy and invaluable practice that allows us to evaluate our impact and optimize our time. It involves assessing how our time is spent, highlighting areas allocated to management tasks, and optimizing those areas to gain more time for your success criteria, whether that's teaching or instructional leadership or parenting or doing whatever work that you do. 
Clutter checking can be as simple as recognizing how much time you spend on opening and reviewing emails and reallocating that time to your success criteria. At the end of the day, it's all about shifting our mindset, looking for opportunities to learn from others, and building community through collective efficacy. Schools can do this by implementing practices that help build self-efficacy, allowing teachers to focus on practices that have a positive impact on student learning. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.